tonight, Lord willing, we're going to dissect 1 Timothy chapter 6. I've titled this uh, particular message, Godliness with Contentment is Great Gain. Godliness with Contentment is Great Gain. 1 Timothy 6 verse 1 says, let us... Let, let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor to the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And that word bondservant can be translated slave. And, and as we, we talk about this, I, I'm, I just encourage you to, to think of, uh, not think of slave in the abusive manner that the world has taught us. And these are people who are in submission to another and is not used in a negative connotation when using connection with the Lord, serving the Father, and believers serving God, the Lord, and non-Christians and other non-believers. So when we talk about this word, it's a, it's a, it's a relationship. It's a relationship between maybe uh, an individual or a group of people and and this, this, the reason it's spoken of here is because this system of slavery served as an economic structure in Rome, in the Roman world. And the master-slave relationship is similar to today's employee-employer relationship. So think of it in those terms. So it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship, and, and uh, we should not think of it otherwise, especially in this context. In many cases, slaves were better off than day laborers since much of their food, clothing, and shelter were provided by the masters. And here, when it says, uh, many bond servants are under the yoke, and, and under the yoke refers to an expression describing submissive service under another's authority. It does not necessarily describe an abusive relationship. So under the yoke, and we think, uh, you know, this load of this, 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 Heaviness been dumped on us because of the word yoke, but that is not the case. This is only a submissive relationship. Uh, in this case, uh, they say count their own masters. In this case, masters describe one with absolute and unrestricted authority. And there is only one high and lofty one that deserves that description. An absolute uh, and unrestricted authority. All honor, and that honor refers to, it translates into faithful labor to an employer. Faithful labor to an employer, and, and we think in terms of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Whatever we do, however we do it, whenever we do it, it should honor him. And as our sister prayed earlier, uh, it's all about him. It's all about him. Everything we do, everything we say how we minister to folks, uh, and how people, uh, Christians and non-Christians. And we are in no position to be uh, the, the judge of who is and who isn't. We don't know anyone's heart. So we should treat every person as our neighbor. I like him. I don't like him. So I treat them differently. That's not the Lord's heart. That's not it at all. So we should, if we want to follow him, we have to have his heart. It's not an option. Because if you're following him and he looks back and says, 
Hey, Satan, get behind me. That's not what you want to hear. So you want to know that whatever you're doing is honoring him. It says in this verse one, it says uh, that that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. His doctrine is a revelation of God summed up in the gospel. You want to know what his doctrine is? Read his word. You want to know his heart? Read his word. You want to know what path we should follow? Read his word. And you can't go wrong. And anytime you're having a conversation with uh, another person, I won't say Christian, uh, I'll just say uh, even non-believer, we should, we should express on the outside what he's doing in us on the inside. And that way, that's all this person is going to see. We shouldn't put ourselves in a position where they got to wonder, I'm not sure if she's really saved. I'm not sure if he's really saved because of their actions or reactions to something that was said or done. We need to express the heart of God at all times. As Christians, as believers, when we display a proper attitude of submission and respect and when we perform quality work, this makes the gospel message believable. There shouldn't be any doubt about whether your heart is of the Lord. Everything you do, everything you say, you're giving it your best. Some of us are willing to settle for good or better. But if you're a true Christian, if you've got a true heart for God, then you want his best. And he'll give it to you. He will definitely give it to you. So let's not settle for anything less than that. Verse 2, and those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. And working for a Christian should produce more loyal and faithful service out of love for a believing master. As a Christian, this is what's coming through, faithful service, loyal service. And we don't always express that. Guilty. I don't always express that. And it's not something, I'm not boasting that I don't, but it's just something that I mentioned to you guys before, and it still applies. I'm under construction. So the Lord is still doing a mighty work in me. And I know I don't always carry the attitude of Christianity. I don't always carry the attitude of the fact that I'm committed to this faith-based system. I don't always carry that attitude. But I understand why. There's flesh in the mix. And anytime there's flesh in the mix, flesh in the mix it's going to want to take, take over. It's going to want to run the show. And if we're not careful, it will, regardless of how grounded, how structured you are in what the Lord has for you, that flesh will take over, regardless. So don't kid yourself. Well, I'm really, I'm really tight and I'm really grounded to the rock. I'm, 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 I'm knee deep in the rock, so I'm solid. Yeah, but from the knees up, there's flesh. And especially here, there's flesh. And here, there's flesh. So we have to be careful that we don't uh, consider ourselves above anyone else because of that. You know, how many times you go to church or, or the badge that you wear at church. 
uh, it can be totally irrelevant. Because on any given day, everyone in this building, everyone in Pixieland are prone to wander. It's just there, folks. And, and don't kid yourself. Uh, the word exalt means to call to one side. This is a strong urging, directing, and insisting on following the principles for correct behavior in the workplace. What's the workplace? This church is a workplace for some of us. Your job is certainly a workplace. Wherever you go, it's a workplace. You should be able to glorify God no matter when, what, when, where, whom, and how. You should. And it's difficult. And, and I'm not going to stand here and, and tell you, oh, it's pretty easy. All you got to do is, no, it's not easy. Not at all. It's not easy for any of us. And even the, the, the best of us can tell you that it's not. The ones who are really spiritually led fail, not by God's standard, but our standard. And we'll look at them and say, well, he did this or she did this, so it must be okay. It's not okay. If you, got a, if you have a personal relationship with him, you don't base your actions or reactions on anyone else. You're always acting or reacting to him and what he's imputing into you. Always. So don't let the external affect the internal. In uh, verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. That word teaches otherwise refers to teaching a different doctrine or, teach, or any teaching that contradicts God's scripture. Is what that person teaching, does it line up with the word of God? Is what that person teaching, is it really scriptural? And we have to be careful, and we look at these days, uh, Paul, in this case, and Timothy, and how the false prophets, the false teachers, were infiltrating, had infiltrated the churches, and they were teaching their own doctrine. You know, they were teaching uh, doctrines of marriage. They were teaching doctrines of diet, food, uh, your, what, what you ate and didn't eat, whether you should marry and not marry. And... They taught according to what the people reacted to. So in our vernacular, that would be called itching ears. You're prone to it. You're prone to itching ears. Oh, you know, that sounds pretty good. I think I'm going to go to that church now because they say that this, this sinful habit that I got is okay. Well, according to the pastor, so that makes it okay. Absolutely not. Does it line up with the word of God? That's what we, and then we'll talk about a little bit later some of these things that Paul teaches and uh, the characteristics of that false teacher. Now, in, in, in chapter, in verse 3, Paul gives us, gives us three examples of three characteristics of a false teacher. Number one, they teach a different doctrine. There are many pastors out there today that teach prosperity. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to have that house on the hill. God wants you to have that fine automobile. God wants, to ha wants you to have the finest of everything. And that may be true. But they teach it as a wholesale thing that God would want for everybody. That may not be true. That's going to stumble some people. 
and we'll talk about covetousness in just a few minutes. Another characteristic of that false teacher is they do not agree with the teaching contained in Scripture. Well, I think we should change this up, and this is what the false teachers were doing in in Ephesus. They were teaching some things that were just totally out of line with what the Scripture says. The bad part is they had people who were buying into it, who were saying, you know, that sounds pretty reasonable. I think that, you know, I can, I can adjust to their system, their way of thinking, because it's convenient for me. And that's why we have so many religious systems today. Because if you don't like the script, the, uh, what's taught at Calvary Rochester, you go out seeking to find utopia. It doesn't exist. And if you do find utopia, you'll be standing next to a unicorn. So, there you go. The third thing, the third characteristic is they reject doctrine. The false teachers reject doctrine which accords with godliness. False teachers will be marked by sin. And if you read God's word, you have an idea what constitutes sin. And these false teachers... Find out what it is that you're prone to. If you're prone to fornication, it's okay. It's okay. Everybody does it. And this false teacher is saying it's okay because God has already forgiven you. He's already paid the price for your sin. So anything you do now, you're covered. God forbid. And that's what the word tells us. Don't buy into that. Don't buy into if you know the truth. I I said last time I was here. In order for you to recognize a lie, you must know the truth. And when you read this, the scripture, this is the truth. So if it doesn't line up with that, it's a lie. So you don't have to ponder it. You don't have to wonder, "Mm, I'm not sure. You know, the Bible does contain a lot of gray areas. It does not. It does not. If you read your Bible through and through, the Holy Spirit, Lord willing, will make you aware of bringing that black and white together to eliminate the gray. There is no gray. There are no gray areas in the Bible, regardless. I'll stand by that until the Lord comes back, and then I'll have him explain it to you. But there are none, and there's some people who are willing to compromise, and that's really what it is. That's how we come up with gray areas, by compromising. Well, Does it really say? Did the Lord really say? And that line's already been used, and we see how that turned out. So let's just stick with what he's given us. Verse 4, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions. And disputes refers to idle speculation. Well, I, I think this is what happened. Or, well, guess what I heard? Idle speculation. You don't know. Find out. Proud, ignorant, false teachers who don't understand divine truth. This leads to word battles. And, and word battles refers to trying to impress you with my knowledge. I will not boast in anything. Nothing. 
except Jesus Christ. And that's what we have to stand on. Don't boast in anything. False teachers produce nothing of benefit of their fleshly, corrupt, and empty minds. And empty meaning there's something there. There's a mass there. But that mass is contained a lot of vanity. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And that's what these guys were all about. All about vanity. Verse 5, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourselves. Destitute uh, refers to stealing, robbing, depriving. Some weak believers would pull away uh, from contact with the truth. It got to a point where they just weren't interested in the truth anymore. I want you to preach and teach what makes me feel good. Because if you don't, there's a church across the street that will. I hear good things. Don't be pulled away from contact with the truth. Be drawn to the truth. Although the false teachers once knew and seemed to embrace the truth, they turned away from the truth. Now, I will admit to you guys, I don't understand that. I've said this 17 times. I don't understand how someone can taste that he is good, yet turn away. I... I Personally, I don't understand that. But when we see him face to face, that's going to be, well, it probably won't be my first question, but I'll have others. But that's one of the questions that I want to understand. And some have tried to explain it to me, but their words just didn't, didn't penetrate this, 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 this. It, it didn't, didn't get through and is still not getting through. How does one do that? How do you know? Because... If you taste and see that he is good and you turn away, what you're saying is there's something better. There is nothing better. But the closest I could get to understanding that is because in order to not want to follow him, follow the Lord, that means I'm counting the cost of what I've got to give up. Is it really worth it? And we think so at the time. We think so. I'm willing to give up this you know, in order to follow the Lord, then I, I can't do these things. I can't go to these places. I, actually, if I, if I become a Christian, then that means i got to give away my money. Show me where it says that. If I become a Christian, that way I've got to give up all my worldly possessions. Please show me those scriptures. I'd like to see them. I search. I can't seem to find them. Now, there may be somewhere where we can manipulate a scripture in a certain context to say, well, here it is right here. And that happens all the time. But I, I, I don't believe that's the intent of the word of God. With these false teachers, most of the time, the motivation behind false teacher is monetary gain. That happened then and it's happening now. It's all about filthy lucre. So they, they, they're going after the money. It's like if... If I can get them to follow me, if I can get them to contribute to my cause, then I'm okay. And there are people now, and you guys, we, we laugh at it. We make a joke out of it. You know, send me $1,000, and I would send you a, 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 piece, a chip of wood off the original crucifix, the, orig, the original cross. Or I'll send you a, a piece cut from the garment that, that hung on, that touched Jesus' head. I would send you one of the... Th- uh, thorns out of his crown for a mere $500. P- 
people are buying it. They're buying this nonsense. But the idea, uh, and, and when it says, um, when it says at the end of verse 5, from such withdraw yourself. To me, uh, and I hope to you, that idea expressed is self-evident. Don't be drawn to them. Be pulled away from them to the true, true uh, and holy God. Verse 6, now godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment can be translated self-sufficiency. Got to be careful with that word. Simply because self-help, self-made, in terms like that, can stumble us. But uh, Christians ought to be satisfied, sufficient, unflappable, and unmoved by external circumstances. We, as Christians, can ill afford to allow the externals in our lives, like the world that we're in right now today, and even the youngest among us know what's going on around us. And so many of us are being drawn in. We're buying what they're selling. Don't, don't. And especially the, 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 the ones of us who've been around for several seasons, and we're still buying this nonsense. You know, we've seen things that were said, and we believed them, and then we found out weeks from that, it was just an out-and-out -out lie. And that the powers that be has that kind of control over us. Us, all of us. Can't, there's no denying it. And who would have ever imagined that we would be uh, as um, subservient to the things of the world as we are today? No one could have ever imagined that. You've got to do this. Why do we have to do this? Because Dr. Vinnie Gumbad says so. Is this good enough? Well, okay, if he said it, then I guess we must. Christians are to be satisfied, sufficient, unflappable, and moved by external circumstances because we are not to seek for more than what God has already given us. He is the source of true contentment, the only source of true contentment. We can't allow ourselves to be pulled in, and we say, well, I'm pretty content. If you're content, then why do you desire more? If you're content, content, why do you desire more money? Well, it's just kind of nice to have. How do you know that you don't have enough? How do you know you have too much? The only way you can know whether you're rich, poor, or anything is when you compare yourself to someone else. Other than that, you don't know. There's some of us in this room, I don't know, that probably grew up with very little. They didn't have the best of food, the best of clothing. They didn't live in the best house on the street. But if, until someone told them that their standards weren't up to par, they never knew that. Unless someone points it out to you. And then as we get older, we start to look around for someone here for us to compare ourselves to. We're looking at the neighbor's car. Ooh, new car. Nice and shiny. Got to have one. If the neighbor's got one, we got to have one. Oh, they just had put a new roof on their house. We got to put a new roof on our house. Oh, they, they got lawn services now. So, honey, you know, let's, let's get lawn service. And we're always looking around 
always, consciously or subconsciously, we're looking around to see how we can measure up. We got to have it. We got to keep up. Who says that? When you think about where that came from, where did that idea come from? It didn't come from anything that you read here. There's a bunch of folks that get paid huge sums of money to convince you that you got to do what everybody else is doing. We can't buy into that. Again, we are not to, not to seek for more than the God has already given us. He is a source of true contentment. Uh, verse 7, I'm just going to read it and move on. For we brought nothing into this world, and it means, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. I like to think that we all understand that, so I'm not going to even, I'm going to leave it alone, just as it is. Verse 8, and having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Food and clothing are the basic necessities of life. This should make us a Christian, this should make us as a Christian content. And Paul does not condemn having possessions as long as the Lord graciously provides. Paul does condemn the desire for money, which is, results from discontentment. And I asked a question earlier. How do you know when you have enough? How do you know when your 401k is, is your max in it? How do you know when, okay, that's enough. This is enough to get you through till the Lord comes back. Then it won't really matter. But we're never content. The only reason you want more money is so that you can have more things, more power, more prestige. It sounds good when you can go to the party and people are gathering around you because you can tell them how to invest and make it grow. It sounds really good when you can go to the party and you can tell you the, the people that you and your wife and your two kids have an 18-room mansion. It sounds great when... You can tell your friends, or well, they're usually not friends, first of all, so I'll, I'll withdraw that word. The acquaintances, that, yeah, it's just my wife and I drive, but we have eight cars. I, really? And, and I'm not, I'm not going to knock that. I, you know, I've been poor and I've been rich. And today, you know, one time I would have said rich is better. But. Some of you uh, who, who uh, might have been introduced to the hip-hop word, there's a phrase that they use, more money, more problems. There's a lot of truth to that, guys. And, I, and I'm, I'm not trying to be funny. I, I, I was wealthy at one time, but we're going way back. Um, and uh, some of the things that I was subjected to, some of the... the Scams that were prevalent and still are, even more so now. Anytime I see something on my phone that says spam risk, it's like, what's this about? So it brings about other problems that we don't, we don't really desire. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. That word desire clearly describes those guilty of greed. There is a consuming desire to acquire more. Rockefeller was asked, how much money is enough? Just one more dollar, my friend, one more dollar, that's all. 
never enough. Why do we need more money? I said earlier, because we want more things. What we have is not good enough. What the Lord has provided us with is not good enough. I'm eating steak six days a week. I like to have steak seven days a week. Nice juicy T-bone. Inch and a half. Such greed uh, may lead these people to suffer destruction and hell. These are the eternal punishments of the wicked. Destruction and hell. I'm not getting anything good out of that statement. Destruction and hell. Is that where you want to go? Is that, where you, is that how you want to end up? Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And this phrase, uh, love of money, uh, refers to affection for silver. That's what it translates into, affection for silver. And a lot of us can relate to that. Money itself is not evil, since it is a gift from God. And Paul condemns only the love of it, which is what the false teachers were all about. They loved money. I do this for money. I'm a hireling. So I go around and I teach what the, what the church wants to hear as a hireling. So he's just reaping this money, and he thinks that I'm, this is it. I'm, I'm successful. Uh, and the downside is that can turn against you. Anything that we desire obsessively, regardless of what it is, it can be a real detriment to our lives in so many different ways. You know, whether it be money, whether it be stuff, whether it be things, it can always, always, always turn out to be a negative. So we have to be conscious. So uh, the, the question that I propose, even from the Sunday school days, what occupies your mind 75% of the time? Rhetorical question, but it's something that I, I, I pray that you would ponder. What is it? And, and it's no different for me. My mind is not always on the word of God. You know, I, I have uh, things that I, I like toys. I like lots of toys. And I can see where that can be a, a true detriment. So think about the thing that you obsess over. Hypothetical question. This is not here, but I'm going to throw it out there. If you had a million dollars tonight, what would that million? How would that million dollars be used? Ponder that one. How would you use that? And just by answering that question with a pure heart, that's going to be an indication of where your heart really is. What would you do with that million dollars? What would be the first thing you would purchase? And that would, that would lead you to where your heart is, for sure, guaranteed. And the thing about it is foolproof. It doesn't really matter your age, status, gender, ethnic, ethnicity. It doesn't matter. That will lead you straight to your obsession. Think about it in your spare time. These apostates strayed from God and strayed to gold. 
they have turned away from pursuing the things of God in favor of money. That was their primary function. That was their motivation. Monetary gain. How different are they than us? I'm not saying everybody in this room is obsessed, or everybody in the sound of my voice is obsessed with money, but what is the motivation behind it? 11, verse 11, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. And a man who officially spoke for God, one who is faithful, that's O man of God, uh, one who is faithful and strong in light of persecution and difficulty. Well, I can be a Christian as long as they don't turn up the heat. You know, when I get put in a situation where that would be nice, I'm going for it. Who's going to know? Danger, real danger. And that's what these men, uh, in, in, in the, as they are faithful and strong, one who is faithful and strong in light of persecution and difficulty. And how do you know a man of God? How would you, how would you and I know a man of God, a person of God? The, the, the man of God is known by, one, what he flees from, two, what he follows after, three, what he fights for, and four, what he is faithful to. Now, those are four, they can be very difficult questions for all of us if we can answer those individually. What do you flee from? What do you follow after? What do you fight for? And what are you faithful to? Do you truly contend for the faith, as it says in Jude? Do you? Well, sometimes, then that's a definite no. There's a definite no. If you flee for the, if you uh, fight that fight, if you contend for the faith, sometimes, what that's really saying is, sometimes I don't. If you don't, just a little bit, that means you don't. Do you contend for the faith? What are you faithful to? Are you faithful to the scripture? Are you faithful to the word of God? Do you follow the word of God? Or do you twist it to fit the things that you want to do? The sin, the area of sin that you want to get involved in and, and ignore Romans 8. Well, if I can twist the scripture to support what I want to do, then I'm, I'm all good. I'm good. And there is no condemnation because what I'm doing is okay. What I'm doing is not wrong, so it's perfectly fine. Scripture supports what I'm doing. What do you follow after? And there's a, a long list of things that we follow after. In the same uh, verse, righteousness means to do what is right in relation to both God and man. Very important. Very important. Love your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your might. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why are they in that order? They have to be. They have to be. If you don't love our God, 
then you're not going to love that brother. You're not going to love that sister. If the Holy Spirit is not leading you to have a personal relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then it's not going to lead you to have a relationship with anyone outside of that. You may fool yourself into thinking that that relationship is strong, but you'll find out that it's a compromise. You cannot compromise a relationship with Jesus. You can't. It can't be done. Because there is no relationship if you're not all in. And until you do part one, until you have that, that vertical relationship, the horizontal is not going to exist. You've got to have this before you can have this. Righteousness means to do what is right in relation to both God and man, and it emphasizes outward behavior. I look at you, and, and I try my best not to judge, but I, I haven't locked that one down yet. But I pray about it a lot. Uh, but I find that it's okay for me to be a fruit inspector because I'm looking at that outward behavior. I can't see your heart, but I can certainly see your actions or inactions. And I'm not going to come and tell you, you're a sinner. Yeah, look who's talking, you know. But uh, this, this righteousness emphasizes uh, outward behavior. And godliness refers to one reverence for God and could be translated God-likeness. God-likeness. Like God. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a Christ follower. I want to walk the way he walks. I want to talk the way he talks. I want my heart to be led by the Holy Spirit. I want, I want, I want. Do you really? Or do you count the cost? Well, my friends won't accept the fact that I'm a Christian, so when I'm with them, I have to act differently. Wow. Show me a scripture that supports that one, besides the words lukewarm or uh, double-minded, uh, double double-hearted, divided heart. And those are, not ne- those are not positive statements. Those are not terms of endearment. Show me that. We want to be godlike. Verse 12 Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The word fight was used in both military and athletic endeavors to describe the concentration, the discipline, and extreme effort needed to win. You want to win hearts for Christ? It requires concentration. It requires discipline. And it requires extreme effort. Well, I don't know. I don't know if that's really true. Because I witnessed to a friend of mine once and he accepted Christ on the spot. Okay, how about the second person that you approach? Did they accept it? Continuation. It's got to be consistent. You've got to keep going at it. You can't give up. And that's what this, this term fight means. The good fight of faith is a spiritual conflict with the kingdom of darkness in which all men of God are involved. Are you a person of God? Yes, I am. Then you are directly involved with the kingdom of darkness. How do I know this? Because the word tells us that there's that battle that's going on. That's going on at all times. 
that light, that darkness, and they're happening. They're happening. Every decision that you make, every time you make a choice, choose to stay who, uh, who you will serve. Do you choose darkness or light? And I'd like to stand here and say that I choose light all the time. But the Lord won't allow me to lie to you guys. There are times when I choose, not consciously choose darkness, but, you know, this, I can take this because this is a path of least resistance. I'm not going to lose as much by compromising here as I would in other situations. So I'm going to choose the dark side. It's a crazy statement to make, but it's true, my friends. And I know there are other saints among us who can say there are times when I've chose to go in that direction. It cost me. It cost me big. But that's what I chose to do. That, that good fight of faith is a spiritual conflict with the kingdom of darkness in which all men of God are involved. It's not something that you subconsciously invite yourself to, but it's just a nature of our fleshly nature. It's just a result of our fleshly nature. I don't want to subject myself to the things of the enemy. When we get drawn into what the world is compelling us to do and say today, you're getting drawn into that darkness. And regardless of who you are, no matter where you are, you are prone to that. But I don't want to do that. The powers that be say you must. And we, we, we give in, we compromise. Paul is encouraging Timothy to live and minister with a heavenly and eternal perspective. We must respond to God's effectual sovereign call to salvation. We must. In order for you not to get caught up into that, we must live and minister with a heavenly and eternal perspective. Heavenly and eternal. That's a far, far, far gap between us, between this and what the world is calling us to. Again, choose to stay who you will serve. We must respond to God's effectual, sovereign call to salvation. Must. It's not an option. I think you should. It doesn't say, I think you should. This can't be interpreted. I think you should respond to God's effectual, sovereign call to salvation. You must. We must. And good confession refers to Timothy's public confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, which likely occurred at his baptism again when he was ordained in the ministry. So as Paul is encouraging Timothy, that's the charge that has been given to us, the, the, those of us who get to teach, those of us who get to minister. But that doesn't exclude you. You get to teach. You get to minister. You get to encourage others. Even when you're sitting with them doing other things, you get to minister to them. We need, we must take advantage of those opportunities. Well, that's a pastor's job. Really? Hmm. Priest and kingdom. Does your name follow under either one of those priests priest in the kingdom? Does that follow? Does your name follow under that? Fall under that category? 
your priest? What is your responsibility in this case? Are you, uh, have you given uh, uh, the privilege to not have to teach the word of God? Have you been granted that privilege? Now, not, now that's for the pastor. That's for uh, the deacons, uh, elders, whomever. That doesn't include me, doesn't it? It includes you. It includes young and young at heart. If you get an opportunity to teach, I compel you to take it. I, I, I beseech you to take it. Don't pass up. Well, I was really very busy, so you know I'll, I'll pray with them. I'll pray for them next week. You guys know how I feel about that. You have not been guaranteed next week. At the risk of sounding morbid, you don't know. You don't know if that person is going to make it or you're going to make it. Take advantage of it. And it's something that, that we're all guilty of, how we, because our lives are so busy that we really don't have time for certain things, and that's one of them. I, you know, I would read the Bible more, but my life is so full. How many hours a day has the Lord given you? So what's monopolizing those hours? Something that's more important than the gospel? Something that's more important than praying for and with a friend or acquaintance or a non-believer? Is that more important than whatever we do to occupy our time? Uh, granted, uh, this is all individual. The Lord has given me a charge. He's given you a charge and you a charge. And that's what we follow. Not because of what works for me, but what he has given you. Uh, knowing that some confession would uh, cost him his life, Jesus confessed that he was truly the king and messiah. He never evaded danger. He boldly and trustfully commissioned himself to God. How about you? Are you serious about this commitment to the faith? Are you serious about allowing God to work in your life? Are you serious about Regardless of what the costs are, you're willing to commit. Are you really serious about that? He never evaded danger. He knew what the cost was, and he committed himself to God. Will you commit yourself to God? And I won't say can you. I know you can. It's just a question of will you. Are you willing to do that? Verse 14, that you keep his commandment without spot, Blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. And this, this commandment is the, the entire revealed word of God, which Paul charged Timothy to preach and guard the word. Preach and guard the word. And Paul gave this charge to Timothy, but the Lord has given that same charge to us. Preach and guard the word. Am I doing it, you ask? Are you doing it, I ask? Are you preaching and guarding the word? Christ's return ought to be motivation enough for the man of God to remain faithful to his calling until he dies or the Lord returns. Are you determined to keep the faith? Are you determined to remain faithful? 
And it's a challenge, folks. I know. I know it's a challenge. It's, it's, it's for all of us. No exclusions. But it can be done. Fifteen, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is a blessed and only potentate, the king of king and lord of lords. And the time only known to God that he establishes eternity past for Christ, until Christ's return. That's the time. This potentate, potentate it, it translates into power. And God is absolutely sovereign and omnipotent. God rules everything. God rules everywhere. That's what that means. And this, this uh, King of King and Lord of Lords is a title used for Christ, is here used of God the Father. Only God is sovereign and worthy of worship. And that I, I said, you know, uh, earlier that he is the only high and lofty one, the only. There is none other. Regardless of what the world says, regardless of what these false teachers say, there's only one. And for those of us who are grounded, we know that. That's the only one that we can trust, only one that we can turn to, only one that supports, encourages Strengthens the only one. 16, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. God and spirit is invisible. Therefore, sinful man has never seen, nor can he ever see his full glory. You've never seen it. We've never seen it. We will never see his full glory. We couldn't stand in the presence of his full glory. 17, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Those who have an abundance uh, are constantly tempted to look down on others and act superior. Riches and pride often go together. Often. It's not a definite, but typically that's what you see, riches and pride. And we're seeing it. Those of us whose eyes are open to what's going on around us, we see richness relative to arrogance, pride. Those who have much tend to trust in their wealth. They're banking their existence on the 401k. God provides far more security than any earthly investment that we can ever make. There's no, no more security than that in the Lord Jesus Christ. 18, let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. And that, that rich in good works is liberal or bountifully. And those believers who have wealth must use it in meeting the needs of others unselfishly and generously. There's a huge challenge, my friends. I earned this, and I'm going to spend it on me. I developed this talent. I went to college for five years. I've earned this degree, and I've earned this job, and I'm not going to share with anyone. I'm not going to let anybody take it away from me. It's not about that. It's not about that. Uh, you know, I'll use the Sunday school word again, joy. Jesus, others, 
you. That's it. That can't be turned any other way. It has to be that way. What do you mean? I've I've spent my life. I'm a self-made man. I spent my life earning this. You think I'm going to share it with anybody? First of all, let's go back into the self-made man part. How'd you get there? Well, I went to school and I stayed healthy. Are those things really under your control? Well, yeah, I work out. I take vitamins. I eat well. So everybody that takes vitamins, work out and eat well, stays healthy, that blows that theory right there. So it's not that. The Lord bless you. He got you through these times. He kept you healthy. He kept you wise. 19, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Storing up can be translated as amassing a treasure. And foundation can refer to a fund. The rich in this world are concerned with receiving a return on their earthly investments, while those who make eternal investments will be content to receive their dividends in heaven. Don't store your your treasures up here on earth, my friends. Paul counsels Timothy what to teach those who are rich in material possession, those who have more than the mere essentials of food, clothing, and shelter. Paul doesn't condemn them nor command them to get rid of their wealth. He does call them to be good stewards of their God-given resources. God-given resources. Every resource that you have, my friends, ladies, gentlemen, is a God-given resource. There's probably some smart people in this room. Where did you acquire that knowledge? Where did you acquire that wisdom? Where'd you get it? God-given resources, folks. And he's, everything that he's given you, he's given you in abundance. So that should encourage you to share the wealth. Whether it be money, whether it be knowledge, whether it be time, whatever. Whatever resource he's given you, share it. And you will be richly blessed. When you hoard it, when you lock it in your fists, You've heard this before. Nothing gets in, nothing gets out. The, the men, uh, women with the talents, what do they do with them? They hit them. And so there, there was no gain. Verse 20, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings in contradiction of what is falsely called Knowledge. What was committed to your trust, and that is those who continue to sin after the process is carried out. You sin, we prayed for you, prayed with you, yet you tend to remain there. Real danger, and it's very discouraging as well to be in a situation such as that. Timothy was to guard the truth. We are to guard the truth. The divine revelation of God's God committed, committed to his care, and we need the divine revelation of God committed to us. Every Christian has that sacred trust to guard the revelation of God. Every Christian. You call yourself a Christian? Well, yeah. Then you are committed to trust. You have a sacred trust to guard the revelation of God. Well, I don't know, brother. That's, 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 a, that's quite a challenge. Did, everybody tell, did anybody ever tell you that Christianity was not a challenge? 
Did anybody ever tell you that following Christ was not a challenge? If they did, I don't know if I want to consider that a friend. Because anybody who would tell you that, and they really understand what it means to follow Jesus, they would never make that statement. False doctrine is anything claiming to be the truth that is, in fact, a lie. We've seen it in our world today. Claiming to be the truth that was, in fact, a lie. False teachers typically claim to have superior knowledge. You know what the word says about knowledge? Knowledge puffs up. Do you understand the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Knowledge is something that we've acquired. And wisdom is the ability or the desire to express that, to send it out, to give it out. Wisdom. We can know stuff, but if we keep it contained in this cranium, what good is that to the word of God? What good is that to the godly kingdom? He's really smart, but he doesn't share with anybody. She's really very brilliant, but she keeps it to herself. Where's the good in that? And the only way you would want that mindset, that attitude, is for monetary gain. I don't want anybody to know what I know so I can benefit from what I know. And that flies flat, flatly against what the Word of God says. Let's wrap it. 21, by professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. The chosen angels not the fallen angels. Paul closing salutation goes beyond Timothy to the entire congregation at Ephesus. That can be when he said, uh, grace be to you. Basically, he would say, grace be to y'all. It included everybody, that congregation and anybody who was to read the word. We as Christians have a charge to keep. We require the grace of God to preserve the truth and pass it on to the next generation. That's huge, my friends, huge. Because now we have a generation that, and I, I thank God that I get to see exceptions to this, but we have a generation now who hears the, does not hear the gospel. We have a generation now who doesn't care to hear the gospel. We have a generation now that's been encouraged not to hear the gospel. So when I get to see people, young, younger people, and when, when young, I'm using the word younger, you know, we're still talking big numbers. But when I get to see people that are uh, what I consider young and they're worshiping God, it blesses my heart well beyond measure. It blesses me so much to see that. And it's not something that I often talk about, but it's just, it's just a, a godly sensation that can't be expressed in the words. You know, we're constantly looking for a word uh, to, to express how the Lord is working in our lives. So the best that we can do so far is, is the word awesome. And someone else suggested uh, recently, I don't remember what the word was, superficial alidocious or some. See, I can't even say that. Super, super, super fragile castle. Never mind. Never mind. The church. No, you don't. 
But we digress. Anyways, what he said, uh, the church's main responsibility is to guard and proclaim the truth of Scripture. So Paul here instructs Timothy on how to guard and protect the word of God. So the charge that we, we have to keep, the, the pastors at Calvary Chapel, and I'm going to read it, change some words, the pastors at Calvary Chapel and the members of Calvary Chapel, yeah, that's it, and the time to go. <laughs> And the main responsibility is to guard and protect the truth of Scripture. So, so the, the Lord here is encouraging us to guard and protect the Word of God. Guard and protect it, folks. It's precious, more precious than anything that you can imagine. I know how we love our children. I know how we love our grandchildren. They are precious. But the Word of God is more precious than that. And to me, that's... Uh, that's, that's it. I just can't imagine abusing it. I can't imagine I get the opportunity to, to, to hang out, to fellowship with you, and I'm teaching prosperity. I can't imagine sitting here uh, with a pure heart and telling you that this area of sin is okay because so many people are doing it. It's acceptable now. That's not the charge that we've been given. So my charge is to stand here, sit here, read God's word, understand it as the Holy Spirit has taught, and give you the straight skinny. That's what he's put on my heart. And that's, what, that's the charge that I want to keep. Heavenly Father, we're just so thankful for um, this time that, again, that you set aside just for us. And I do pray, Father, that uh, if I've said just one word that has discouraged my sister or my brother, I pray that you would just eliminate it from my minds, from my hearts right now. I just pray that uh, your word, Father, uh, was rightly divided, as always. And I just pray that you would just continue to strengthen us, to encourage us, to build us up, Father, as only you can through your Holy Spirit. So I pray, Father, that... uh, the words that you've given us didn't fall on deaf ears. I pray that there was something that was said to encourage each and every one of us here, Father. I also pray if there's anyone among us tonight, whether in this building or at the sound of my voice, who does not know you yet as their Lord and Savior, that tonight would be the night of salvation, Father. I thank you for what, uh, what you've done in our hearts, my heart, in the hearts of the ones, uh, my sisters and brothers. And I just want to thank you, Father, for who you are. And I want to thank you even more so for whose we are. May you receive the glory in our lives from this day and forevermore. In the name of Jesus, our soon returning King, we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. God bless you guys.